I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to open them up. 2 Peter chapter 3. I'll be reading the first 13 verses. Uh, if you don't have one, there's some Bibles in the foyer as well. We'd love to give those to you. And everything I'm reading should be on the screen behind me. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and by that, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth now exist and are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, and what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, the day coming of the Lord of God, the Lord, the day of God. I was so close today. <laughs> because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be, diligently, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. This is the reading of God's word. We're getting better. We've been adding a tagline to this series saying, imagine a, a picture of the future so compelling that it has to inform your today. And we've been coming at this same thought from multiple angles, and we'll be doing that all summer long, so that it'll actually awaken, and as, as Peter writes in this passage, stir up our hearts. And today, our, our title is to, to actually invite us to obedience that matters today, because it will have an everlasting impact. That, that I would encourage you in this sense, that obedience is not just what we think it is as a... If, I need to do these things because I'm obligated, but it is a transforming of our heart into something that is eternal in nature. Now, I want to pause for a moment before we really break into this text and just simply ask or start with a question. Do you believe that what you do today matters? And I'm not just talking about utility. The 
the function of your activity. I mean, do you think what you do every day has worth and value? Does it matter? Does it, does it roll over with some kind of dividend into tomorrow? And I know some of you will be captivated by that question because you're in a place of discouragement going, I, I don't think my today matters at all. Or some of you are leaning in because there's a genuine soul searching within you to go, I want to have a life of meaning that my today would matter forever. And I would simply say this, that we are given through scripture and through the Christian faith a wonderful and captivating truth that our today, our obedience matters forever. Everything you do, and I would encourage you to think of it this way, we, we tend to, and I'm framing this as obedience, but we could do the same for disobedience because we are largely motivated by two things. Does this get me what I want or help me avoid what I don't? I mean, that's what motivates our obedience, but it also motivates, if we have in us a rebellious heart, disobedience. Will it get me what I want or keep me from what I don't want? You know, think about this. How many of you, maybe don't raise your hands, just answer internally, okay? How many of you, when you see a photo radar, you automatically become one of the greatest drivers in our city? You slow down, only to speed up like 100 meters behind. How many of you, when you know the company is, is, there's a promotion to be had, you are showing up to work on time, excited, doing every little thing, or on the flip side, if you know there's layoffs, you're going to be more diligent and, and attentive to your work than ever before. But as soon as that promotion closes, as soon as those decisions are made, you default back into old rhythms and behaviors. How many of us... When there's an election to be had, we're passionate about our politics, but the moment somebody is voted in, we could care less or engage at all with what's happening in our society. This is how we're wired. If it gets me what I want, or helps me avoid what I don't, I will lean in with obedience or possibly disobedience, but, but we're being called to something else, and that's radical transformation. You know, why is this the case? Peter would start this way. And you have to be mindful of this. This is Peter's final letter to the church. One of Jesus' disciples, passionate leader of the early church, writing what is likely, to his knowledge, his farewell speech to the church, were likely from Rome as he's facing what would be death for his faith in Christ. And his final charge I mean, think about this for a moment. If you knew that you could write a letter, and this was not to a single church, but to a network of churches, what would you want to convey to them? And his charge is this, holiness. Men, women, I, I want you to be holy. I want you to have lives marked by obedience and, and pursuing Jesus. That's, that's his, his only heart and thought for them. And as he say, says that, he says, I, I know the arguments against. I know the hesitancy that's inside you. I know the motivations of your, of your spirit. And I want to speak against those. And his argument is essentially this. Your obedience matters because it always has mattered and it always will. Two-point sermon today. It's always mattered. He builds his argument this way. Um, notice. He, he hems the scriptures together. He doesn't, perhaps he didn't realize this, but he is in his very letter penning part of the New Testament. 
that would inform and educate and stir up the affections for Jesus amongst the early church and the church ongoing. But, but he's saying this, the teaching of the apostles, that's Jesus' disciples, his closest friends and followers who become the early church starters. He says, we have, we're only carrying the torch. This is the natural outflow of what has been taught throughout Scripture. This is not a new thing. It's been building this way. So when you push back on this idea of why obedience, you're not just pushing back on me, you're not just pushing back on the apostles, you're pushing back on the entirety of, of the biblical teaching and faith. In fact, verse 3 and 4, let me read it for you again. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Scoffers going to scoff. Following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are as continuous as they have from the beginning of creation. What are they saying there? What's new? What good is my obedience? Again, we obey to get what we want, a reward, or to avoid what we don't, and that's a reprimand. What's in it for us? What's new in life that, that has changed or looks any different for us now and since the beginning of time? Their argument is essentially, we, if we hold up our end of the bargain, where is God to hold up his? That should strike home for some of you. If you've been a follower of Jesus long enough, you have asked that question. God, I, I think I've done all the right things. And, and where's, my, where's my reward? Where, where, where are the blessings that are supposed to come to me? And, or how am, I, how am I stumbling into or experiencing hardship? Last week we talked about suffering. Why am I experiencing these things if I'm doing all the right stuff? It brings us into a place of conflict. And it actually causes us to question, why, why choose obedience at all? And he responds to them this way. One, he says, there's, there's always going to be scoffers, and there will always be impatience. First of all, there will always be scoffers. And if you're like, we don't use that word. I don't think any of us do. Um, it means there will be those that stir up derision. They mock. They make fun of. They stand immovable in the, in the space of good counsel to go, no. They're contrarian. And there's something about that that is, yes, there are those who embody this role, but there's something about that inside all of us as well, because what's their motivation? It's right there in the text. So that they can fulfill their sinful desires. God, why am I putting off the things I want to do to be obedient to you when it doesn't seem to be paying off? And, he, and they appeal to, because it doesn't really seem to be changing anything. God, you, you don't seem to be here. You seem to be far off. Where is the promise of his coming? You have to appreciate that they're writing this in a relatively short fashion and time period after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Here we are reading this now some 2,000 years later. If it doesn't land with them, it, it will most certainly land with us. God, when? When are you going to right this situation? When is our obedience going to count? And he says they overlook an important argument. They're saying this. God is a God far off. God is a God not involved. God is a God that doesn't seem to engage. And they're ignoring two important things. And notice that, that he doesn't even directly speak to the work of Jesus, but he gets there. He starts by saying, well, how do you make sense of creation? 
how did you get here in the first place if it's always been this way? Well, it started at some point. And when it started, who do you accredit that to? And he quickly bounces into, and if you answer that in any way, well, how do you make sense of the cataclysmic event that we have in our scriptures, and he's appealing to a group of people that would likely hold them with some respect of what we find in Genesis 6, and that's the flood. That's why he says, he speaks to the water that is a deluge. That's an allusion to the flood. And the flood account is simply this. God's speeding up the timeline. It's God's judgment over creation to go, we, I see the motivation of your sinful hearts. This is how we see obedience and judgment intersecting. Of a picture of God saying this, I, I, I know the trajectory we're going on and I'm just gonna, out of mercy, speed up the, the timeline and we're gonna wipe the whole thing clean. And I know that, you know, as modern day readers, we struggle with Genesis 6, this picture of God flooding the earth and basically a cosmic do-over, but that's essentially what God's doing. This is a mercy rule in effect. If you've ever gone to like junior high sports and one team is just stacked against the other, and they're like 50 points up, and the referee's like, okay, mercy rule, wipe the scoreboard, the game's essentially over, just let them play, but we're not going to count points anymore. It's the same thing. This is on a trajectory where it's not going to change, and we're just going to, out of grace, speed it up before we have to live out any more suffering. That's what God did in his flood. But if you look to Genesis chapter 9, God speaks to his own action saying this, I am going to covenant not just with Noah, but if you read the text, I'm going to covenant with creation. Never going to do that again. He's not just, and when I was a kid, I read that like, okay, so flood is off the table, but how many more ways can you destroy the earth? You know, like asteroids, zombie apocalypse. I mean, I was a kid. Uh, you know, and it, you just think like, okay, so we know the earth is not going to get flooded, but something else is going to happen. No, that's not what he's saying. I'm no longer going to wipe it clean. I promise to engage. I'm going to work with it. I'm going to work with you. I have intervened and I will intervene. That's his covenant. That's his promise. He says, notice this. I've judged through water. I've, I've washed it clean. Never again. Now, I'm going to judge through redemption. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to work in you. He speaks to the scoffers saying, did you not see that, that this is not just in our story, but it's also in you? Obedience to God throughout the biblical text has looked like this. If our hearts are obedient and maintain and adhere to the word of God, there's blessing. But when we don't, when God's people don't, there is cursing, there's consequences. And yet what we see throughout the law and the prophets, the Old Testament worship system and the temple, is that God's law has a crushing weight that humanity could barely, and only in perfection that none of us could ever do and of ourselves, maintain. And so it's this picture of being crushed by that weight. And it's remarkable that this same motif of washing is in it as there's ceremonial cleansing, sacrificing, and the washing of God's people, that they would be able to continuously be worked with 
continually able to be put in a position where God can intervene in their lives. And that's what Peter's drawing on. So when, guys, when you go, where is God? He's like, he's, he's been working with you. Don't you see? And when there's impatience, well, where is he now? You know, I, I find this one kind of comical. Because if you think about that mercy rule of God going, I'm just going to speed this up. I'm going to dial this up on fast forward because we're heading on a trajectory that can't change. And then, and then humanity in our impatience says, God, would you just bring this to an end? And he's like, don't you see that I slowed it down for you? Don't you see that I, I, I changed the dial now so that there would be patience that as I choose to work with you, ultimately doing that through the work of my son Jesus, that you have opportunity to repent and turn to me. Uh, I want you to have as much time on the court as possible to hear my word, let it stir in your heart, come to repentance and life in me through the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't you want more time on the clock? I don't know about you, but I've, I've heard many Christians pray this, and yes, I've been tempted myself. Jesus, just come. I mean, ha hashtag the pandemic. Lord, like, this is nonsense. Just, just call it. And there's, there's, there's a danger in that heartbeat. There's a danger in what that is, because it's, it's the picture of we're, we're asking for fire without understanding what that fire is. We see a transition of judgment where he says, I, I once judged with water and now I'm going to judge with fire. And, and one sounds a little harsher than the other, but remember the imagery that Peter is building. We spoke about this last week, but just to help you catch up, fire was a, a picture of purifying, refining. The, the imagery is this, that through faith and what Jesus has done for us, He's instilled in us, he's deposited in us as followers of Christ, the Holy Spirit, which is like placing gold deep inside that in fire is not burned away, is not burnt up, but only enhanced, made more pure, pure brilliant, and valuable. And when fire comes, it's this picture, like God's holiness. This is the image we're given. As God's holiness presses in, everything in rebellion to him has to burn away. God's mercy to a rebellious humanity was, you got to leave. You know, I'll put that in the most simplistic terms. Parents in the room, if you're, when your kids are, are, are pushing your buttons enough, sometimes the most loving thing you can do is what? You should probably go. Because I am going to rain down fury. And it, you know, it might not be a righteous judgment, but it's, it's a picture of God going, this can't stand in my presence. This is not of me. God's holiness burns. And the end of all things is this, no separation between humanity and God. And for those who are in alignment with him, who said, God, I, I've, my choice to say, not your way, but mine was wrong, and I choose you, that, that's gold that will be refined and last throughout the ages. But for those who stand in rebellion saying, I, I still choose my way, it will burn. It can't stand. 
You know what you do when you have an argument that doesn't have any footing? And we've all been there. I think inside of all of us is a little defense attorney. You know, and we've seen it, like, you, it, like look, go downstairs. The kids have it. It's innate. It's born inside them as a parent. Who drew on this wall? I don't know. There's a marker in your hand. I don't know how I got there. That's your name on the wall. I'm stumped. What are we going to do about this? This is a real problem, Daddy. Like, that's in us. We do that. When you get caught as adults, you act just the same. You're just a little bit better at lying. And when you have no argument to stand on, you know what you do? You attack. If I can't build my argument, I'll discredit yours. By the way, we are not too far removed from seeing this all throughout our social media and our radio advertising when we had a two-race, or sorry, two-party race for our federal or provincial election. We don't even know what our platforms are anymore, but they're not good. Don't choose them. That's what we do. Don't look at me, look at how, like, uh, let me just tear you apart. And this is exactly what the scoffers are saying. This is what we say in impatience. God, it doesn't matter if I'm not holding up my end of the bargain because I don't think you're holding up yours. We've done that. We've prayed prayers like, God, I was obedient and look where it got me. God, uh, I tried that for a while and I'm still hurting. God, I've, I've prayed for the day to come and look where I am. And, and here we are in a place of, of going, no, is it obedience for reward or to avoid pain or is it obedience for something else? Is it an alignment to him? Is it true treasure being stored up in us and refined through the coming of his kingdom? And that's what Peter's going, guys, that's what I want you to have. Guys, that's what I want you to, to be. This is God's justice rolling over the earth. Again, this is why obedience has always mattered, but it's also a picture of why it will always matter. Peter's building up an argument saying, God has not tarried too long. Christ came at the right moment, the precise moment in history that he would turn away, uh, not, not just God, fulfill God's promise to turn away this idea of well, we're not going to wipe the slate clean. We're actually going to work with humanity, but actually provide a way for humanity to endure. I'm going to place my, myself in you. If, if you need one tagline for today that will help you understand what it is to follow God better is you, you cannot obey God without God. Without the Holy Spirit, you're, you're toast. You need his help. We need his help. I need his help. Just, just for my every day. And we're called to obedience, not because God's like, yeah, I really, really, really want morality here. It's, no, I really want people that are shaped in my image and reflect me. But we're so recklessly broken to a place of ruining that rebellion. God, I want it my way, not yours. That he deposits in us his spirit so that that would be changed. And it's wonderful today as we read the catechism, justification and sanctification. Sanctification being this ongoing work 
of maturing in Christ. That our, our job is not just to get you into the kingdom, but growing in the kingdom. That this is a picture of advancing his kingdom as well. This, this is what Peter is referring to. Every time, every moment, every way in which the needle moves forward in our obedience and our radical transformation towards looking and, and being more like Christ, his kingdom advances on this earth. He actually com commends us, church, to his original audience and by extension to us to hasten the day through holiness. You want to see God's kingdom come now? Then pursue his presence and his holiness will roll over the earth. First away, burning away all the stuff in you that's in rebellion to him and then allowing that to go forth into your community and forth in your family, your workplace, wherever you might be. That's what he's saying. Church, I want that. And I want this, he says, and this is to your mercy. This is to our joy that, that God has slowed down. That is our story. If you know Jesus, that's your story. You know, Lord, thank you for being gracious and patient for me. That's my story. I don't know how many times I heard the gospel for, before one day it clicked. I don't know how many times after it clicked that I needed to actually submit to, okay, God, I, not only do I know this is true, but, but I, I submit to it. And I'm grateful for our Savior who is patient with me. He's saying, don't you want that? He's saying, don't pray. You know what, God? Nuke it. And, and I'm saying that quite sincerely because, you know what, this is unfortunately how many have been taught the Bible and particularly what it means for, for the day of the Lord, for his coming judgment, for the end of all things. It's kind of a, a mentality like one day it's just going to burn, so who cares? You know, imagine if that, just for, for a moment, imagine if that was God's heart. It... it actually dilutes so much of his work, so much of his patience, so much of his ongoing promise to, I'm going to work with that. I'm going to redeem that. I'm going to restore that. I'm going to change that to, eh, it's going to burn. Instead, it's a picture of this. I, I want you to become people of holiness so this world sees more and more of his kingdom until the day where it sees its kingdom in completion. It's, it's a picture, I love how C.S. Lewis does this. It's, it's Narnia. Lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. As Aslan comes into the land, all of winter starts fading away. Has any battle been fought? Not yet. Has any victory been won? Not yet. But he's won. His kingdom is pressing in and the signs are all around. He's like, this is what Peter's saying. He's like, church, if you get that into your heart, you're on the right track. I was thinking about this. Maybe it's not the greatest example, but it, it was tangible for me. Um, we're Calgary weather, so like bright, sunny one moment, like stormy hailing the next, right? If you live in the South, you understand that. And I was taking my dog for a walk, and we just had this like crazy windstorm go throughout the neighborhood, knock down all like the blue bins, and so everybody's recycling was through the streets. And I'm walking my dog, and my thought was this. Not only does my neighborhood look like trash, I was thinking, it's not my responsibility, you know, it's too bad for these neighbors. There's, 
why should I do that? And then I, I had the thought, what if somebody drives by? They're going to think I'm a bad neighbor if I don't pick, pick up some trash. So perhaps if anyone drives by, I'll just agree to my, with myself that that's when I'll pick up some trash and arbitrarily put it in a, a, one of these blue bins because then I'll look at it. And I could see in that, in that moment, my, my inner motivation is this. If I can look good, I will. If I can avoid pain, I will. But anything else is disagreeable to me. And I had this inward wrestle as I walked through my neighborhood, which looked horrible. And then you know what happened? I started just picking up trash and throwing it in the blue bins as I walked because what changed me was this. You know what? I just want to have a clean neighborhood. That's the picture that, that Peter's going, guys, that's what holiness looks like. Not, not picking up trash, but the idea of, God, I'm doing this because this is your heart. I'm doing this because it looks like your kingdom. I'm doing this because, you know what? It's in alignment with my Father. And so our good acts, we don't care about the reward. We already have the fullest reward possible. We, we also aren't looking forward or looking just to avoid pain. If pain comes, it's okay because we know why we're doing what we're doing. That's what he's calling us to. And when we have a picture of that, it's one of, I want to advance, I want to extend, I want to be a partner in this redeeming work. Did you not know that if you read your Bibles, there is nowhere in Scripture that it says, for those who are in Christ, when they die, they go to heaven. It says something very different. You will not find that line in your Bible. Now, we get that idea because we have a cultural mentality and understanding shaped by the art of the Renaissance and a few other contributors that makes us think that. We lay that idea atop of verses like John 14 where Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and Matthew 27 where he says to the thief on the cross, when, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. But what, he, what is he actually saying in those passages? What is Jesus actually saying? What does God say throughout the entirety of Scripture for those who put their faith in him? You will be with me. I'll take you to myself. And where that, where, where I am, that is paradise. Where I am, that is my kingdom in its fullness, rolling over uncontested. And the picture is this. If you were to turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 18, it says, but we do not want you to be uninformed. This is writing to the early church, the one in Thessalonica. Brothers, about those who are asleep, that would be those who have passed away, that you may not grieve them as others do who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring those with him who have fallen asleep. With this we declare to you, excuse me, to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and those who are alive who are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet him, to meet the Lord in the air and so will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, so many times we, we read or we think of, you know, God, hasten the day. Pull me out of here. When it's a picture of, no, I'm coming back. 
so that we can, that there's no distance between you and I. I remember my, my grandmother, who's still with us, she, she was fighting an illness and she confided in me. She's like, I am just hanging on because I want to see Jesus come back. And I shared this passage with her. I'm like, you know, even if you don't hang on, you'll still see him before other people. And she was like, well, awesome. Then let's, let's end this thing. That was not the intended encouragement. It was, <laughs> it, it was a picture of like, I, I don't know how, how things work outside of time and space. You, we can talk to God about that one day. But it's a picture of this. There is this awesome hope of God's advancing kingdom that has been doing so since the work of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension that is pouring out over creation now and one day will come like a thief. That doesn't mean like one day, oh, well, there it is. It's one day, you know what? We're going to be blindsided because we weren't paying attention. It's going to happen to its completion in a moment. And in that moment, what do we see? We'll be with him. And when we're with him, all that is not of him will be burned away. And Jesus descends again and again. And we see it even in this passage to do what? Redeem his creation. New heaven, new earth. Fully his. This is our hope. And, and we have to combat the, the poor mentalities that we've been given. If you've perhaps grown up in, in the church, we've sometimes fallen into the trap of, you know what, perhaps it's more of an escapist mentality. You know, all fly away. You sung that song. It's a picture of, you know what, God, just whoosh me out of here. Get me into a better place. Put me on that that. that that space shuttle of your grace, and then and I can avoid all this stuff. And that's not the picture that we're given. We're given a picture that's so much fuller than that. Of, no, no, my kingdom has already been advancing and will one day have its completion. Again, this idea builds out of this text that his, his presence is already being deposited in our hearts and ought to continue to grow. This is Peter's desire for the church. He's going, guys, this is why your obedience matters because this is how the kingdom advances now and this is how you are citizens of that kingdom. This is how when the day comes, you'll be like, awesome. I've been ready for it, anticipating it. We're aligning our hearts with him. I, I I hope I'm not the only one who feels this, but it's very easy for us in, in Western culture to, to compartmentalize faith and everything else in our life. Like, this is what we do on the weekends or with our church friends, but we kind of put this aside when we go to work, when we're, when we're with our neighbors and everything else, because we're, we've been given that space to do so. And in reality, that, that, that's the opposite of this picture. He's like, no, this, this is ultimate reality, this should permeate everything coming out in full obedience. Not an obedience to avoid the things you don't want and get the things you do want, but, but to cultivate what you already have, and that's him, and relationship with him. And that's the tension that we ought to wrestle with, being grateful that we are allowed more time to see this build, but also desiring eagerly to see that come to completion. 
That's obedience. And, and we need to properly interpret what Scripture says about the day of the Lord. Now, now you're going to see that if you're a, a, a good, careful reader of your Bible. This builds throughout Scripture. And yes, it re, you know, we tend to hear that and we think that this is the apocalyptic end. And yes, it refers to the end of things, but also refers to so much more. And it begins its trajectory in Scripture actually in Exodus, Exodus chapter 12 where the day of the Lord represented the final plague over Egypt, where God ransom, rescues, and brings his people out of slavery, calls them to and draws them to himself through the washing of blood and the, the ultimate participation in a spotless lamb that was burned in his completion. Do you not see how he's hemming? Jesus hems all these things together. In a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. One of our elders is going to lead us in that. But Jesus brings this picture and, and brings it all together to go, do you not see how I've washed you? So that, that, we can, that the Lord can make his work available and, and, and intervene in your life but you couldn't do for you what only God could do for you and so his he lived the life you couldn't died the death you deserve and in participating in that everything's burned away but what is left after the Passover meal just the people that the work of Christ is this that the one thing that remains after fire is God's people that we'd be agents of an advancing and hastening day, his kingdom. Again, the day of the Lord is simply this, the uncontested fullness of God's authority and rule over all things. As we approach the table, I, I would encourage you to, to be mindful of that image, that, that we get to be stewards of that now, managers of that now, but also may that work deep into our hearts because that is what we hope to hasten, what we celebrate and look forward to, which is the hope and encouragement that Peter gives us going, guys, this is it. This is what matters. Everything else is a distraction. Everything you want, everything you're trying to avoid is a distraction. This is the thing. And if you're like me, we approach the table with repentance because God, I forget that that's the thing. And gratitude, but thank you, Lord, for giving me so much grace, so much time, and the beautiful image of your son and his work for me, that that would work itself deep in my heart and help me to continue growing in you. Let me pray. And after I pray, I encourage you, come grab the elements, and Bill will lead us after one song. So, Father, thank you for your word, and I pray, encourage us to... Follow more closely after you. I pray for those in the, in the room who perhaps are looking into, who, who do not have a professed faith in Christ. You would speak into them with encouragement that, Lord, there, there is a, that their days matter, their activity matters, and it has eternal impact. It always has and it always will. And the ways we invest ourselves, 
for ourselves, we already know the outcome of that, and it will perish. But Jesus, we thank you that you invested yourself into us that we might have activity that, is unper- that will never perish, will never fade, will only be enhanced. But God, you want to stir us up. Our minds, our thoughts, our behaviors, everything, Lord, about us, that, Lord, we would see that working itself out in our lives today in preparation for tomorrow and forevermore. And Jesus, we do pray, hasten the day. But we pray that with hearts that want to be cultivated into holiness, that we would look more and more like your people, that Lord, in that day when there is no distance between your presence and your people, that burning off of what is impure, what is not of you, Lord, there will be so much to stand of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.